Hello to all the listeners. I welcome you all to the next episode of Entrebine Season 2 and I'm your host PJ. The previous episode actually hit 100 plus downloads within just a week of its broadcast. I didn't expect it but it was too quick to reach 100. Like on the entire episode so far this is the fastest episode to reach the 100 plus downloads. I'm happy and thankful for all the support you guys have been putting forward to the show Entrebind. So I just don't want to brag too much. We were talking about this book called Don't Believe Everything You Think. So here we are at the chapter 4. We were talking about thinking is the root cause of all the suffering. But we have these different words called thought and thinking. So what's the difference between thought and thinking? See, thought is something that's energetic. It's a mental raw material from which, you know, we used to create everything in this world. A thought is something that comes with no effort into your mind. It does not need any force at all. It just pops into your mind. And you also cannot control what thoughts pops in your mind. So the source of thought, come from something that is beyond our minds the universe if you will so thinking on the other hand is like the act of thinking about our thoughts it takes significant amount of energy we you know there is a lot of efforts and the willpower that we have to put into so thinking is like if you're engaging yourself on your thought that's thinking See, thinking is a root cause of all the psychological suffering. Now you might be thinking like, where do I put the positive thought? See, positive thoughts are thoughts that feel good by our nature or, you know, by our natural state of peace, love or joy. When you don't think, that's where the positive thoughts really lies in. I'll ask you a simple question. All that you need is to be aware of what you're experiencing, okay? See, What is a dream amount of money you want to be making a year? Just pause here, wait for the answer. Take 30 seconds. So now when I asked you the question, what's the dream amount of money you want to be making a year? You probably would have got a first answer you probably get the first answer by nothing in your mind so after that i have given you a 30 seconds of time right so within that period of time you would have gone through the numbers and thought about the predictions like is it possible for me to earn this money what if i earn so much oh my god i can't do this if this money goes into this, I can buy a new home. I can be a millionaire. Okay. And some of the people will be thinking like, no, I can't make this money. This is so huge for me. Like I can only dream about it. I have so-and-so bank things to do. So-and-so loans. So I can make this. So this is called thinking. 
you are thinking about your thoughts see it's only when you begin thinking about that thought of how much you want to make which is what caused you know the self-doubt unworthiness anxiety anger guilt or any other emotion you may have experienced this is what i meant as thinking is the root cause of all the suffering thoughts create thinking destroys the reason thinking destroys is because as soon as we begin to think about thought we cause uh, you know we cast our own limiting beliefs judgments criticisms programming and conditioning onto the thoughts if you are having a lot of negative emotion then you you should remember that you are thinking too much so as soon as you begin thinking just make sure to get your mind back to the awareness stage and inform your brain you're thinking just stop it and get back to work that's the only remedy for now i hope that helped so with no further delay let's jump into the episode So hello Keith, how are you doing today? I'm great Pooja, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Like thank you so much firstly on being on the show. Welcome to the Entrevine podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. So to the listener, it is not possible for me to give a quick intro about Keith because he has so much done you know, on his career and I'm, tr- I'm going to try to cover most of it. So Keith started his career as an analyst and in 1996 he had his first software venture he have he has been a director of advanced by nutrition sicona sdc material ultracell kila hazel technology then he has been in the advisory board of chryselix in energy venture capital ngen partners which is also venture capital and arch venture partners he has been a president of basf venture capital america advisory member of world economic forum and general partner at pangea ventures for 15 years he has been a chairman and director of Vesteron Corporation. So currently he is a board chair of Foresight Cleantech Accelerator Center, director of Telius and CEO of Upper State Capital, which is a private equity firm. So I might have left some of the experience in between. I'm sorry for that, Keith. But I would for sure say you know, you, you, your experience as a whole is not even close to my age. It's more than that. So how do you see these milestones you have achieved? Well, I, I'm, of course, proud of everything that I've achieved. And uh, everything that I've done for the past 23 years has been in the clean tech space, uh, making positive impact across sustainability in climate and in communities. Um, I'm very, very proud of that. Um, uh, of course, it's been a lot of fun. It's been very interesting and engaging all the way along, but it's also work that I can look back on and be proud of that I was not just doing the right thing for myself and for my stakeholders, but for everyone on planet Earth. Like all your works that you have done so far is basically on environment or based on, you know, that's, that's, that has a social cost. Like what inspired you to do so? 
Well, it was an accident, uh, actually. The, 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 one, uh, the one group I was with that you didn't mention was Mitsubishi Corporation. Um, and that's how I came to be in, uh, in, in venture capital, was uh, in 2000, uh, I was headhunted out of a software company that I was with. Um, uh, I was headhunted by Mitsubishi Corporation to start up and run their Canadian venture capital activities. Now, my startups in the 90s were all in software and media space. Um, I hadn't done anything clean tech. Thank goodness I'd done two years of chemistry when I was at university because uh, after the dot-com collapse, Mitsubishi said, well, we're really interested in environmental technologies and clean energy. So uh, we didn't have the word clean tech yet. Uh, so they refocused me on that and I was suddenly thrown into the deep end of having to learn everything all the time and that's never changed ever since then just always having to learn about new things and uh, I, I love that it can be overwhelming sometimes but I love it so as you have mentioned about overwhelming like I do see you have handled so many positions at a single time it's it's so much overwhelming like how have you handled those situations? Have you felt burnout at times? Far sure you would have. Well, the, the most number of boards uh, I was ever on at once was 12. Um, I, I know people who've been on twice that many. Um, so um, I know that uh, I've certainly been on more boards than the average bear, for example. But, uh, um, I know, but a lot of people do more than that. 12, though, was pretty extreme. If you think that these boards are typically meeting on a quarterly basis, right, 12 times 4 is 48, essentially I have a board meeting every week, but they wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't be so nicely distributed. I would have some weeks where I was literally waking up in a different city every day, uh, forgetting where I was, uh, knowing... Uh, knowing which company I was serving, but uh, but often waking up not knowing where I was. Um, uh, having said that, you know, the, the, those years, the performance was really good. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of my track record. Uh, and um, yeah, even the one company uh, during that time where we lost everything, I'm very proud of what I did uh, in that company as well and uh, came out of that with a lot of great learning. Got it. So how did you handle your personal life with all these things? Because you have told so much about, you know, what has happened in that particular time. So handling a personal life, family and everything, and, you know, getting hand in hand with the work as well. How did you manage it? Uh, well, I, during that heavy time, I, I became a father for the first time. Um, and then, uh, um, then I, I had a, a second child uh, at that time, and then after moving back to Canada, had a, had a third one. But the first two children uh, well, was during my time in, in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, if something's a priority for you, you, you find the time and you figure out how to uh, work things around that. In this field, whether you're talking about venture capital or private equity, um, there are crunch times when work is very, very heavy. But most of the time, uh, there's a lot of work, but the specific timing around it can be quite flexible. And so I was able to make time for my family. 
um, and for myself, um, as, so long as uh, I would uh, make it, put in the work wherever I could. So working evenings, working weekends, I would do that absolutely um, and enjoy doing it too. Um, but, you know, I tried to make it a priority to sit down and have dinner with my family every night. That's so lovely. I, I mean, lots of love to your family from my side. So you have talked about venture capital and private equity firms like previously right now. So what do you see has a huge positive and a negative side of both being a VC and holding a private equity firm? Because you have worked in both the field and you have had such positions yeah so the the reason why i shifted uh from vc to pe in the last couple of years was because i saw that valuations in venture capital were getting well i think indefensible uh, other people may say crazy <laughs> they were um incredible uh um at the uh, the beginning of 2021 pitch book published that the typical series a pre-money valuation was over 100 million us dollars now if you think about the statistics around how many startups will fail and lose their uh, investors money you know the rule of uh the rule of 10 applies here you need to be able to you have one out of 10 companies succeed and that company has to make at least 10 times your money for a fund for a portfolio just to break even and to produce a good re result for its investors. So if you can't make 10 times your money and you're taking the venture type of risks, um, you're, you're, there's a good chance you're throwing your investors money away. So when you're starting out in a Series A, probably pre-commercial uh, company that probably in, in clean tech, uh, I always said you, you roll two dice for how many years it will take you to commercialize. It might be two, it might be 12, it's probably seven, but you don't know. <laughs> this is the key thing. You just don't know until, uh, until you're in the thick of things. Um, so how many how many dollars will it take to get you where you need to go to have a good exit and in order to make 10 times your money even if you don't raise any more money at that valuation you have to have valuation at exit that's over a billion dollars so the number of clean tech exits that are over a billion dollars that you can point to uh, and indeed in any field are, are, they're few and far between. I mean, we call them unicorns for good reason because they're they're largely mythical. <laughs> and if you see one, uh, or you're lucky enough to have one in your stable, count yourself very, very lucky. Um, to be betting on every deal being a unicorn was crazy to me. And so I was doing some work for Foresight, which is I, I co-founded ten years ago. Um, and is uh, Canada's largest clean tech accelerator. We've had over a thousand client companies through our programs. I was doing some work for Foresight looking at where in the data can I find the pattern about what results in a successful clean tech company. And the answer to that, by the way, is business model, is service-based business models with recurring revenue. Whether you're selling hardware or software or whatnot, its business model is the best indicator that you will have a good performance in clean tech. But what really struck me was looking at the lower middle market. And I saw 
that lower middle market companies could outperform venture with fewer risks, uh, profitability right from day one, and have the possibility of leverage to further magnify your, your results. I was blown away. And the more I looked into this, the more similarities I saw with venture. These companies may be profitable, but they're still small, and they're still scrappy, and they have the same kind of HR uh, and scaling problems that a venture stage company has. But they have the advantages that their products are already commercial, they're already profitable, they are, uh, they've already found their product market fit, and uh, because of all of those things, they're also bankable. So that gives you a lot of advantages, and yet they were valued at a fraction of what venture companies were, were valued at. Now, I uh, bought our first company that we bought at Upper Stage is called Talius. Um, Talius have uh, products that can save uh, air conditioning costs by more than 50%. Uh, I'm going to sell those to the sell that company to the same strategic acquirers that would be interested in a venture-based technology, but I only had to pay a fraction, a very small fraction of what a Series A company was worth in order to get a nice, profitable, growing company with beautiful products and a 93% market share in schools out here in Western Canada. I was able to talk to the customers. I already knew. I didn't have to roll the dice and wait those random, unpredictable number of years. I knew even before I bought the company exactly how good the products were and that I would be able to scale it into other markets. You know, as you talked about the seed A, seed B rounds and so on. So I just have this question, like what stage of startup does private equity firm invest in? I've talked to venture capitalists, I've talked to angel investor. They all go with like either early stage or like, you know, uh, in the seed A, B, C, D. So where does private equity firm fits in? Oh, so uh, I don't I don't do the startups except maybe personal investments uh, anymore. But for for private equity, it goes in bands, and uh, those bands are roughly break along orders of magnitude. So um, up to um, around up to and around a million dollars of EBITDA, you have the lower market. Um, those companies might not even be break even. Uh, or they can have, you know, uh, up to a million dollars of EBITDA. Between one and 10 million of EBITDA, that's the lower middle market. And that's a space that's very interesting for me. Specifically, we play in two to eight. We don't go all the way to the extremes of it. But one to 10 is the lower middle market. There are very few organized players in this space. Um, we uh, come up uh, against very little competition on most deals where we are uh, bidding, as opposed to the lower market, where there's a lot of search uh, search funds. There's a lot of people looking for just a cash cow that can give them a dividend income, and they can be very good for that. If, if you're retiring and you want to find a company that's uh, kicking out uh, you know, a million dollars of dividend in a year, this is a, a, a great way uh, to do it. Uh, assuming it has the management talent in it to keep it running. Uh, from the 10 to 100 million uh, EBITDA range, you have the middle market. This is a very busy space where there are a lot of funds. You can imagine uh, in 10 to 100 uh, uh, million of EBITDA, there's a wide range of, of valuation. 
um, there's an ability for these billion dollar plus funds to get involved um, where they're able to put 50, 100, 200 million dollars to work at a time uh, or, or more. Um, and, and that becomes very attractive. In this space, you have a lot of competition, you have uh, much higher valuations. When you get above that 100 million of EBITDA range, you're really getting uh, up towards the upper market. And then at a billion dollars of EBITDA, etc., you're really into large cap uh, types of, of companies. So I'm really interested in the lower middle market because the EBITDA multiples for valuation in this in this market tend to be about five, four to six, um, uh, whereas in the middle market they tend to be above ten. So if I buy a company at let's say three million dollars of EBITDA, I roughly triple its EBITDA up to ten million, let's say, um, and sell into the middle market. Not only did I more than triple its EBITDA, but I've probably more than doubled its uh, its multiple that's paid on that. And because I was able to leverage it, let's say I borrowed half of the money I needed to buy that company, I've got a further doubling. So that's three, three times three times two is 12. Furthermore, I use ESG, uh, I use ESG as a roadmap to de-risk and improve the operations of those companies. And there's a great, uh, uh, there's a great paper out there from McKinsey that shows that uh, buyers uh, are willing to pay between 10, 40% more for a company that has improved ESG performance than for an equivalent company that hasn't focused on ESG. So there's a further boosting there just from that. So I, I target to make the 10 times money on each one of these deals, but without taking any of the technology risk. What factors do you actually consider when you're selecting your debt or an equity partner for the deals that you make in your equity firm? Um, so there's a couple of different ways I can take your question there. Uh, do you, if you mean uh, my funding partners, the limited partners, the people who invest uh, into me, um, what I'm generally looking for there are people that are able to give me access to information. They have some knowledge. They have some experience in the industry where I've worked before. They might be willing to sit on an advisory board or even board of directors. Uh, they could open up doors for me into customers, suppliers, uh, eventual buyers of the company. Um, all of those strategic elements make things very interesting to me. Um, those same elements make what I'm doing interesting to those kinds of people. If they're operators, if they understand the space where I'm investing, they, they tend to understand what we're doing right away. Whereas some other people that I talk to, uh, um, they look at me with a blank stare, like they never imagined that impact investing and private equity could go together. But they absolutely do. And uh, um, it's great if I don't have to explain that in great detail, but people people get it right away. So operators tend to uh, resonate most strongly with what we're doing, and they might be in family offices. Is it possible for you to throw us some example of what sort of flip that you have made so far with Thalia? Is it because that's the one that you have under your portfolio now so it could give us a better range of idea on how this flips could actually work sure 
Yeah, f- f- I, I wouldn't characterize what we do as, as, as flips, but I understand why, why you would use that word. Um, so uh, at, at Talius, uh, when we came in, uh, they were really not doing anything in the way of marketing. Uh, they had some brochures and they had a website. Uh, um, I think they had a couple of Facebook ads, but that, that was it. Um, and they, yet they had a 93% market share in schools out here. So I knew that they were doing something right, and I knew it was really being driven by word of mouth. Um, we also knew that they had a product that was better than anything else in North America, and we were hearing this from American customers or customers in Eastern Canada who were ordering the Talius products because there was nothing else as good as them or even close, and they would pay for the shipping or import duties just to get the best products. I knew that there was a bigger market. So that was, I think, the the number one thing that we brought into Talius. Talius was being very well run by uh, some very smart people. Um, obviously, there was a lot that attracted us to this great business. Um, but the uh, the the CEO uh, he decided it was time for him to uh, to to step step away and to uh, a little bit slower pace of life. He still. Uh, sells uh, the Talius products for us in the Caribbean. He's a very valued partner uh, for us, but uh, without him running uh, things, and, and he ran it as a very successful and growing uh, but lifestyle business, we came in with a vision to become the North American leader, to develop the blue ocean, if you will. There's, no, there's really no blood in this water. The blue ocean of the underdeveloped North American market to prove that it can be done and to become very attractive to European and Asian strategic investors who will uh, very much value the, uh, the access to this new blue ocean market. So I have a controversial question here because most of the time it's, it's the investor, right, who makes the buyout. And, you know, they are focused on profit so once the margin is hit it's likely you know they throw the company back into the market for sale and you know for it's it's more like an asset stripping so what's your view on that one um yeah we already have an interesting offer on the company but we're we're not uh, looking to sell it right now we we want to realize this vision of proving out that the North American market can be developed, that the value proposition of, of cooling uh, buildings, uh, of making them more secure, um, of, of saving lives. For example, we, we have a brand new school lockdown uh, product in our product line that uh, in five seconds completely locks down a school with a, an RC2 through RC4 rating that can delay an intruder by 15 to 30 minutes per doorway uh, um, this is huge and can uh, and can save a lot of lives so we've introduced that product so the idea of saving energy uh, saving carbon emissions saving lives that's very compelling to me and as we develop this uh, to be large enough uh, we become a very interesting strategic strategic acquisition but also we could be a very interesting public company as we were talking about these things, I have this important question that pops up right now. So VCs 
and the angel investors like they have different exit strategy but what does the exit strategy of the private equity firm be like so when things are not in favor how does the outcome looks like oh i don't like this idea <laughs> things going out of control but i've been there uh especially in venture companies <laughs> it happens um no the exit strategy is the same here as it was for my venture-based companies the majority of them will be sold through m a okay and and if you can sell to a strategic that is the best there's a wonderful book on the shelf behind me there called magic box paradigm by ezra Roizen, and the subtitle is um a uh, framework for startup acquisition wonderful book i recommend it very highly uh and it's all about a business development approach to partnering with your eventual acquirer uh, and uh, convincing them to pay a strategic premium to buy your company. Um, I still think that's the best way. Selling out to middle market private equity, uh, I already outlined the mathematics of that, why that can be very attractive, and uh, I, I think that's a, a likely outcome as well. Um, IPOs or or other listings, whether through reverse takeover or SPAC or whatever you want, that is a possibility for a product that is sexy enough to appeal to uh, to um, to retail consumers' imaginations, uh, and which can produce very steady uh, income and steady growth. Uh, where you would be able to sustain a good uh, share price, good volume trading, that's the key. Um, uh, so that's always, that's a possibility too. And then all other types of exits are really unattractive exits, like a management buyout or, uh, um, or heaven forbid, a fire sale situation. Um, I've, I've been through uh, those before. Um, yeah, didn't, didn't come out great. Um, uh, so I vastly prefer uh, selling out to strategic. I'm just interested in knowing the aftermath situation. So once there is a leverage buyout LBO and how does the thing work for the CEO or the investor? Do they own a part of their equity or they have to sell the entire part to the private equity firm? Yeah, so we're, we're flexible about that. It, it can be a 100% buyout like what we do to, with Talius. Um, but even then, uh, one of the owners rolled over a significant amount of his proceeds, uh, invested it back into us. Uh, so uh, we continue to work really closely with him. And the other one, as I mentioned, is, um, is selling our products in the Caribbean. So it is also still a valued partner. Um, for the one who was retiring, we, uh, and this is what we would typically do with someone who was stepping away, we had a consulting agreement that would continue for up to two years uh, as needed, where we could draw upon their expertise um, and their network to, to help us with any gaps. Uh, anything that we didn't learn during due diligence, they would be available to, to help us. Sometimes, though, it's uh, only a partial buyout. Uh, we, we had a, a deal last year where it was a younger uh, CEO um, who had uh, an incredible rate of growth going on that he could no longer handle. He wanted to continue working in the company, but not running it. 
He wanted to continue with what was best for him, where he was most comfortable, and not be working 100 hours a week like he was having to do to keep up. In that case, we were looking at a 75% buyout. He would still own 25%, uh, and uh, he would still continue to run the sales and manufacturing organization that was at the heart of the business we were buying. As you have been an investor, I mean, a venture capitalist, and uh, you have been in the private equity firm as well. So what do you think is the hardest part of actually managing a private equity firm? The hardest part of the private equity is culture. You have a company that's been around maybe for decades. Talius had been around for more than 40 years when we bought it. And uh, it's been run uh, as a lifestyle business, a successful, profitable, growing business. Uh, that's great. But it doesn't necessarily match up with the ambitions of becoming a, a world leader in the space and going out into international markets. Uh, it doesn't necessarily match up with the kind of, uh, of proactivity we expect to see in people in work. And uh, not everyone liked the new direction that we went in. Uh, a lot of people did, but some people, they decided that it wasn't for them. We had to make some cultural changes. Uh, so we go in on day one, we have uh, what we call our purpose and principles, where we talk about our values, right? And our, our values are um, around, um, we, we take DEI, very seriously. We, uh, we, we want representation uh, from, um, from all different types of people in all different levels of the organization. We have a very uh, strong stance on bullying and cultures of bullying where we, uh, we want to create a fearless work environment where people will stand up for one another and are not afraid to speak their mind, to bring the best ideas, even the best, sometimes the best ideas start off with a dumb idea that is the seed of a great idea. And I don't want people afraid to speak their mind. So we come in with these values and we say, if you can't agree with these, that's fine, that's your choice, but you should start to look for other work because we have an inclusive workplace here where uh, everyone's uh, input is valued. Um, and a lot of people really love that, of course. Um, uh, but for some people, it was a hard adjustment. For everyone, there exist memories that are unerasable, like they exist every time. So what's the most memorable investment you have made during your time as the CEO? And why is it so memorable for you? Well, um, why don't, why don't I go back to before? Uh, I've already talked a lot about Upper Stage. So I'll talk about uh, Vesteron, um, where I was not CEO, I was, uh, except I, I, I helped out during a difficult phase. Um, I, I was chairman there. And now Vesteron, uh, uh, Vesteron have developed a completely novel class of uh, molecules, proteins, that are as effective as the leading synthetic pesticides, but have no uh, toxic effects on mammals, birds, fish, even bees and other beneficial insects. And yet they kill the crop destroying insects 
uh, as effectively as the worst poisons you would spray your crops with. Uh, and you could walk into the field immediately after spray. You could eat something right out of the field without needing to wash it. Really uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, um, line of products they've introduced. I'm very proud of, of, of the work that, that they've done. Um, I got a call um, one uh, uh, Sunday morning while I was uh, with my children at the piano lessons. And uh, in the night, the CEO had died in his sleep. And uh, there really wasn't any choice. I just had to get on an airplane and get out there. Uh, now, I'm in Vancouver, and this company's in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, now, the next, the, the very next morning, uh, we, were, we had already begun a CEO search uh, um, uh, because uh, John was going to step back from that. Uh, um, we, of course, we didn't. Nobody anticipated that uh, he was in his final days. Um, and I had an interview with uh, with Anna Rath, who we would later hire, but it was the first interview. Anna and I had met years earlier when she was the CEO of Next Step, the uh, biofuels uh, company, and um, so we were already somewhat familiar with each other. But I knew she would detect something was awkward in the call. We could not reveal what had happened because not all of John's family had been located yet. And I wanted to be very careful about the information here. So I knew the call was very awkward because we were struggling with this uh, situation. Um, and it was at the, the, some hours later, I was able to phone Anna back and say, you know, you probably detected that was awkward. She said, yeah, you think? <laughs> Absolutely, I think it was awkward. Here's why. Um, yeah, um, so for some weeks there, of course, we, we, he was beloved. He, was a, uh, he really was uh, admired uh, by every member of the team. Uh, he was a great leader there. And they, they, he was not only CEO, he was a great scientist as well. And his loss was very difficult for everybody to accept. I, I saw staff openly weeping in the public hallways. Um, it was very difficult. But um, we got through that period. Um, we didn't lose any staff. Uh, I would say that the rest of the management team all stepped up, um, and the board as well. Uh, everybody stepped up to help fill that leadership gap. And um, we were very fortunate to get Anna as a CEO uh, a few months later. Uh, she was she was there and uh, really rocketing up the uh, the commercialization and sales uh, of the uh, of the Vesteron products. So uh, that was a very memorable uh, time in my life. I feel like it aged me for sure. It was a lot of very hard and, and emotionally draining work, but um, I'm very proud of it. It's clear how it makes the world uh, a better and healthier place and keeps our bees alive. I'm very proud of it. That was really a moving story, you know. I truly had goosebumps and it, it was so emotional in terms as well. So what advice would you give to aspiring private equity professionals in how they can, you know, best prepare themselves for a career in this industry? Well, this space, I think, needs operators. Uh, and so uh, have operating experience. 
if you already have the operating experience, then that's that's the tricky part done. Uh, you c would be able to step into these companies and assess them, do diligence, uh, figure out which ones are good and which ones probably have risks that should be avoided, um, uh, and then run them after after purchase. Uh, that's the thing when w the CEOs are generally. Uh, retiring with the baby boomers is 72% of all North American businesses. Uh, and I think the statistic is pretty similar wherever you go in the world. They're baby boomers and they want to uh, transition their business this decade. Just in the U.S. and Canada, if you work out the math on that, it's 8,000 businesses a day. Seven days a week, 365 days a year, 8,000 businesses transitioning from now until the end of the decade. It's a shocking number. Um, and so you, you will be running these companies at least for some time until you find somebody like an Anna Rath uh, to come in and, be, and bring a new vision and new energy uh, to take that company to the next level. Um, so having the operations background is really important. Uh, even for me, uh, having spent you know, the last uh, two decades plus on, mostly on the investment side, I had the 1990s as an operator. Um, I've uh, I have that experience. I know what it is to hire and fire people, to have people let you down, to miss deadlines, uh, to launch products, uh, and there's really no substitute for that. It's not uh, uh, it's it's not really an academic or hypo hypothetical thing. You have to understand the kind of business that you're going to be doing. For now, like what advice do you give for companies that are looking out there to approach a private equity firm? Like, is there any tips that you can provide them? Uh, it, it work with somebody who uh, understands what an investor is looking for. Get your finances in order. Uh, don't don't hide your problems. Put put your problems right out there in the open. They your problems will be found. <laughs> no, no matter what, um, but uh, get your finances in order. Um, allow the problems to clearly stand out. Uh, someone can either get comfortable with the problems or not. But best that you do that, you know that before you've spent months supporting their due diligence, and then they say no, and you have to start your process all over again. Um, it's just better to have very clear financials from the beginning. Um, one thing that we find very frustrating are uh, our sellers who are overly protective about their customers. It makes uh, We understand, of course, that they don't want anybody messing up their business or giving a perception that their company is being sold and spooking their customers. We completely understand that. Um, and, of course, we wouldn't want to do that because if we buy the company, we want everything to be running smoothly. Uh, it's very possible to talk to people. Having been on the venture side of things, I'm always interviewing customers. Uh, it's an important part of diligence. Uh, and it's the same thing in private equity. So uh, find a way that your uh, strongest investors who are deep in diligence, that seem very committed, very serious, that they can talk to your customers. And before that, get testimonials from your customers that can be, uh, uh, you know, can, can at least be believed uh, until an actual interview can be handled. Video testimonials are wonderful and you can use them for your marketing. So uh, that's something that I would recommend to anybody who uh, hasn't done it already. Go out, 
take take a nice camera and uh, film your customers uh, talking about your products for five or ten minutes. So we are almost at the end. I just have my final question that I ask to every single entrepreneur and the guests that I have on the show. So what is your view on passion and failure? I think you should not be afraid of failure. I think failure is a great teacher. And uh, I would not have been able to accomplish all of the things that I accomplished if I hadn't gone out started my first software company and then had gone through the pains of putting it through bankruptcy. Um, And uh, there was a a brief time where I felt shame around that. And yet uh, almost everybody who worked for me there has gone on to amazing careers and they come back to thank me for uh, the time for opening that up and it opened up doors for me. I, I I, I keep the sign from our door behind me at all times there, Mad Genius Software, as a reminder uh, of that, that that failure led to many great things. And even though we put out the, that game, we put out 25 years ago, it has a cult following still. And <laughs> I, 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 watched on, uh, I watched on Discord as uh, a famous gamer played his way through the entire game recently and uh, was just delighted to watch all the comments and the live uh, discussion around this game we made 25 years ago um, and that was uh, was you know considered a failure or certainly the company was and yet it made so many people happy uh, it, it delights me and and it, for me of course it led to many many great things uh, that I'm uh, enormously proud of and that is the end thank you so much for being on the show today Kate and uh, you know it is possible to understand that you have had so many years of experience just by listening to your words it has so much of depth and power into it people can understand that this is from a person of experience the listeners would really get a huge value from this particular conversation and and i should admit it like before talking to you i had negative perception of the private equity fund just as if like an hedge fund but the game here is actually different when you explained it so it's it's going to be based on the ceo if they are not capable to handle it it's you know up to them to pass it on to the other people and just the ceo enjoy their life thank you so much again for being on the show well thank you very much you're very kind i really enjoyed it it's a great conversation and of course i love to talk about the things i'm passionate about so thank you for another opportunity so that is all for the show today and um Thank you, everyone. Keep supporting me again and again. So I'll be catching you up, guys, in the next episode of Entrebine Season 2. Until then, you're listening to Entrebine, and I'm your host, PJ.